And when you start presenting those narratives, it shows complexity. And that's something often tourism doesn't show, complexity in the places we travel to. You're listening to the Better Travel Podcast, and I am your host, Paige McClanahan. Travel has been a passion of mine ever since I was a kid. But as I've gotten older, and as I've learned more about the industry through my reporting, I've really started to see just how complicated travel can be. So each week, we are diving in to some of the most fascinating and complex topics when it comes to travel. And it's all with the aim of helping you, and let's be honest, helping me, learn to be a smarter, better traveler. Hello, and welcome to episode three of our second season. The question that we're exploring this week is whether tourism can be a force for peace. You know, when we say the word tourism, I think a lot of people tend to make associations with things like cheesy cultural displays, restaurants with only pictures on their menus, people taking selfies in front of the Mona Lisa. And of course, the world has plenty of that kind of thing. But I would argue that that kind of understanding of tourism is just one tiny slice of the full picture, because tourism can be so much more than that. To help us understand whether tourism can be a force for peace, I was lucky enough to speak with Aziz Abusera, a National Geographic explorer, a TED fellow, an author, and the co-founder of a company called Mejdi Tours, which takes guests to places like Egypt, Colombia, and Northern Ireland, the American South and Washington, D.C., always with the explicit aim of helping people understand the different narratives and different perspectives that coexist in all of those places. But one of Mejdi's flagship tours is what they call a dual narrative tour of Israel and Palestine. The way it works is that two tour guides, one Israeli and one Palestinian, lead the group together over the course of a week, taking guests to some of the area's most famous and most important sites, which of course have also been heavily contested over the years. So Aziz is Palestinian himself, and he co-founded his company with Scott Cooper, who is Jewish and who grew up in the United States. Aziz started the conversation by describing what it was like to grow up as a Palestinian in Jerusalem, and how he thought of his Israeli neighbors when he was a child. I I grew up in Jerusalem. I'm Palestinian. Um, and actually... <laughs> I have so many stories of me growing up that defined my relationship with Israelis as a kid because I never had a real interaction with any Israelis. I never had a normal, let's say, interactions. And one of maybe the best stories to explain, my 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 only interaction was with soldiers and with settlers. And so I, I remember going home one day, for example, telling my mother that I'm quitting school. And I was, I don't know, seven years old, six years old. I, I don't know exactly. And and she said, you can't quit school. I'm like, I don't think school is worth, worth dying for. And the reason we were fired at tear gas that day. And I thought, I'm, I'm going to die. And I'm like, yeah, I was suffocating. I don't think it's worth it. I thought I made a good case, but my mom refused that argument and instead gave me an onion and said, if there are tear gas, you cut this onion, you put it on your nose and you just breathe in. 
and that will help you not suffocate. And going to school for years after that, I always carried an onion with me. And the moment, the moment I see soldiers, my hand right away goes into my bag and keep my hand on my onion because it's terrifying. And tear gas is really terrible. You don't want to, you don't want to smell tear gas ever again. Um, so that's, that kind of defines that kind of relationship. It's, uh, it was never, I've never had a conversation growing up with an Israeli Jewish person. And it's absolutely ridiculous because when you think about it, we live walking distance from each other. And yet our only interaction was, for me at least, it was fear. Um, it was uh, anger. My brother was killed when, when I was 10 years old uh, by Israeli soldiers. And he was killed because of being beaten up in prison where he was arrested on suspicion of throwing rocks at soldiers. Um, so these that's what defined my my relationship with uh, with Israelis. Mm. And I think, you know, I've heard you describe in other interviews how um, from the age of 10, when your brother died, until you took a Hebrew class at the age of 18, you carried a lot of hatred. But how did that start to, um, yeah, how did you start to move on from that? I, I think the feeling was if somebody if somebody hurts you the way I felt, somebody kills your brother, then the normal response is to hit back. You can't just move on. And I was 10 years old and my analysis was very limited. It was you killed my brother, you have to pay the price for that. And in my way was being angry, being full of hate and uh, bitterness. And, and so for eight years, um, I was very active in, in that role until I was 18 years old. And I realized after I finished high school that I didn't speak Hebrew. And I didn't speak Hebrew because I refused to learn it. It was mandatory in my high school. And I refused to learn it because I was very angry. And I thought, I'm not going to learn this language. Um, but if you don't speak Hebrew in Jerusalem, you're not going to get a job. You're not going to go to college. You're not going to do anything. And so I started looking for a place to learn Hebrew. And the best place to learn Hebrew is Ulpan, which is where Jewish immigrants to Israel go to learn Hebrew. And that was my uh, introduction to Israelis for the first time, because it was I was the only Palestinian student in that classroom. And it was terrifying for me being in that classroom, because I, I kept thinking everyone is looking at me and saying, why is this Arab here? What does he want from us? I felt everyone hated me and I didn't feel comfortable being there. And I remember first day when my teacher, who's an Israeli Jewish woman, came and greeted me in Arabic. And to me, that was the first time someone from the other side, I felt recognized me as a human being, as a person, and not just as here's the Palestinian, here's the enemy. And still it took... It took a while until I started uh, I started this change because often people like to believe change is like a moment and that's it. But it's a process and it's a long process. Transformation is not easy and you fight it often with everything you have because it changes who you are in some ways. Um, but in that classroom, I started meeting people who I saw as the other, as the enemy, as I had many stereotypes. And that's so dangerous because it's not that we don't know the other, it's that we think we know the other. And in that classroom, I realized what I know about the other was not true. 
yes, some some are <laughs> like the one who killed my brother, um, you know, chose violence, chose hatred, but that did not define everyone. Uh, and just the same thing, they had a lot of stereotypes about who Palestinians are, the, the students in the classroom. So we finally had this chance to get to know each other as a human beings and then eventually argue about politics and about religion and about all of these things that was possible to talk about these things and come to agreements sometimes and disagreements sometimes because we got to see the other as a person and not just as an enemy. Mm, mm, absolutely. I'd love to ask you about your tour company, Majesty Tours. How did you get started in the tourism business? And can you tell me the story of the founding of the company? When I uh, went through my Hebrew class, after that, I decided to study a little bit, travel, um, until I uh, started working with Scott Cooper, who became my partner and co-founder. And we both worked in conflict resolution together, traveled into different war zones, uh, uh, were connecting enemies in places like Afghanistan and places like uh, Syria and so on. And, and we felt that what we were doing in conflict resolution and peace work, connecting enemies, holding negotiations, dialogue, programs like that, that it was not reaching enough people. And so we start thinking, what is something we can do that is sustainable and can reach more people that can connect communities from across the globe? And it was very easy for, for us to come to travel very quickly because we realized at that time, uh, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, it was uh, over a billion people back then traveled internationally every year. And we're like, this industry is gold. This industry is where we need to work uh, in connecting people, in helping overcome prejudices, in, in really changing the world. And so we started our company then. Mejdi means honor, respect, glory in Arabic. And the idea is to honor travelers, people where you go and the place that you go to. Um, and uh, we built our programs exactly to do that, to bring voices that people don't usually hear, um, to challenge the dominant narratives. Everywhere you go, if you've ever been on a tour with a group, especially you have a tour guide, there's this perfect narrative. It's just so perfect, like from beginning to end. There are no, no issues with that narrative. There are no challenges somehow that the place you're going to have, especially today. Maybe back in, in, in history, they had some challenges. And so we wanted to present narratives, to present reality. Travel isn't about, let's just, put our heads in the sand and not see what's around us and then make connections between the people who travel and the locals and kind of make the locals travel through those connections, travel by hearing the stories, making friendships. And from the first trips, I think we've run, we saw something incredible. We saw transformations. I can tell you of relationships that started on the first trip that I've run that still today exists between travelers and locals. Uh, and to me, that's, that's what makes this, this work just so much fun to do and feels like you are making a change, you are making a difference. Yeah, I would like to ask you a little bit more about um, the dual narrative approach that you take on some of your tours. Can you just describe what that is and how it works and where you run those tours? You know, I told you in the beginning, I felt when I was working in travel before meeting with Scott and coming up with the dual narrative, we, we innovated, invented this, this idea in travel. Uh, I felt it was always this tour guide will come and just tell you whatever narrative that tour guide has. And you can't, 
tour guides have a lot of power. People believe what tour guides say. And I thought the one, I don't want the people to just be lectured that. I want them to, to hear the different dialogues, the different stories. And so we thought one way to do that in countries, especially where it's easy to, to realize our more than one narrative, to have two tour guides uh, from two different narratives to work together. So in Jerusalem, Israel and Palestine, that means having an Israeli and a Palestinian working together. And I can tell you, first time I told friends that, everyone thought this is the dumbest idea you can come up with. Who would want to travel to have an Israeli and a Palestinian together? They're going to fight, they're going to argue. Who's going to want to pay money to, to live through that for 10 days? It's going to be just tense the whole time. And it was anything but that. Um, because the tour guides didn't fight and argue all the time, which is what everyone, uh, I think I talked to, expected. Um, yeah, they had disagreements, but they realized it's not only political things that they have different narratives, cultural, religious, uh, heritage, art, music. It just was presenting the, the, the travelers with so much more richness in the tour than they would have expected otherwise. The other thing I think that was incredible about, uh, or is incredible about dual narrative, is that it's not anymore one guide speaking for half an hour. The two tour guides will have a discussion and then the tourists suddenly become part of that conversation. Instead of being passively listening, they feel more comfortable asking questions because the two tour guides going back and forth. So we started in Jerusalem with Israeli and Palestinian and then started moving to other destinations, uh, places like uh, uh, Northern Ireland and Ireland, where we have a Catholic and Protestant uh, co-running a trip together, uh, which, to me, it's crazy to go to Northern Ireland and not hear those two narratives um, or going to a place like the Balkans, uh, Bosnia, Serbia, Croatia. Uh, one of my favorite trips, I think, is going with our tour guides there, uh, a, a Serbian and a, and a Bosnian, for example. Two close friends, by the way. There are different narratives within each of the narratives as well. Um, and that's important. When I join sometimes an Israeli and a Palestinian tour guide, I find myself here and there arguing, debating, presenting different narratives with my Palestinian guide, because even though we're both Palestinians, we have different views and things. And our, our uh, participants often shocked by that because they're like, oh, there's a Palestinian narrative and Israeli narrative. No, there are many narratives in each. And when you start presenting those narratives, it shows complexity. And that's something often tourism doesn't show, complexity in the places we travel to. Fascinating. I got to say, I am just dying to go on one of these tours. It sounds so interesting. I'm curious, do you give your guides special training in mediation or conflict resolution? I mean, I imagine that things might get kind of tense sometimes, um, maybe not between the guides necessarily, but with the with the guests. Yes, we, we do. And usually with the guests, much less than, than I've expected. And we don't, this is really important. Often people ask me if we attract only super liberal uh, travelers. And the answer is no. We get everything from very, very conservative. Uh, I, I've been on tours where I've had people identified as Tea Party back in the days, hardcore uh, conservatives, and we've had super liberals, and they'll be together in the same tour. Um, we try to stick to where we are as a 
traveling to and not talk about the U.S., which we're actually now doing dual narrative tours here with Republican and Democrats as well, um, which is a lot of fun uh, to go through. Uh, it's harder, I think, for Americans to to do the U.S. trip. It's easier to do it in other places because it touches on issues we live through. Um, but yeah, we do some trainings uh, of how do you work together? How do you listen to each other? What what happens when you have a strong disagreement? Uh, when do you talk about these? If there's something going wrong, how do you address it in, in your conversation? And it doesn't really happen much, but I think the best training we do is before anybody works with us, they have to go on some of these trips and shadow the other tour guides and learn how they do it. Because you can't, you really can't just train this. People have to see it. And we have some tour guides who've been with us from day one. And so we have them shadow these older tour guides who've just mastered the art of doing dual narrative. And the first time a new tour guide works with us, we often have them with one of the more, uh, um, the veteran kind of the more knowledgeable tour guides and how to deal with this. And they give them advice as they're going through. Um, not every tour guide can work with us. I think there are many tour guides who wouldn't either because they think this idea of two tour guides is not relevant. They don't want to talk about politics. There are many tour guides who want to avoid politics completely. Some are afraid uh, to do this. What will happen if the government find out, regardless, in different countries? Uh, we're not supposed to talk about challenges. We're only supposed to talk about good things. I've heard that from many guides. Uh, and some, they're like, I like to talk. I don't want to hear somebody else. So I interview these uh, guides usually before and we go through all these things and as long we, we don't censor politically we have people from different political views but as long as you're willing to hear somebody else and hear their views um, then that's fine as long as you're not gonna fight to make sure everybody thinks your view is the right one that's not the goal of this of these trips the goal is to present different thoughts, different ideas. It's not to convince them you are right and the other person is wrong. Mm -mm, certainly. I would love to ask you more about the U.S. tours that you mentioned. I think you call them Blue-Red Divide tours. Is that right? Can you tell me about where those tours are run and kind of the what are some of the sites you hit and the topics you, you go into? So we, we've started two kind of tours in the U.S. that have taken off. Civil rights is one of my favorite trips that uh, we've we've been running and we just had somebody doing a story on it uh, as well and uh, joining one of the tour where all the participants were white Americans coming to learn about civil rights and to learn that in a way that just goes here is what happened but try to really understand the implications today meeting a lot of people throughout the trip uh, whether people who have to deal with the past, what happened in the civil rights, but also how it impacts today. Um, and talking beyond also just history, talking about culture, art, all of those things that we often, when we talk about history, we leave out. And by the way, it's the same in other places like in Bosnia or Palestine. When you talk about the community that was marginalized, we often want to talk about them being victims and ignore where they have innovated and see them as a human beings. And to me, that's really important where, wherever we travel. So that's one of those tours. And those happen in the South, everywhere from Georgia and Alabama and Tennessee and uh, South Carolina, uh, the places where the forefronts for the civil rights uh, movement. 
The second is a red-blue divide. And that we've started working that probably about six years ago, five, six years ago. Um, we started in Washington, D.C. and then moved to a few other locations. And the idea is having a Democrat and a Republican co-leading a tour and tackling issues, but not tackling issues just in a, in a meeting room, which sometimes can be a little too much. Uh, tackling these issues as you go into places. So let's take the Washington DC um, trip as an example. Going to visit the monument. Instead of just going and talking about the history of the monuments or about President Lincoln, you, when you have a Democrat and a Republican together, they'll talk about Lincoln heritage and how it's seen from both communities. He ended slavery. Well, he was a Republican. Wait, that, that's an interesting conversation. And you'll have a conversation you've never had in front of the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, then we go to, let's say, the uh, Korea Memorial and talk about foreign affairs, wars that the U.S. is involved in and how it impacts us today and having the Republican and the Democrat each bringing their own view on it. Uh, going to uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, Memorial in D.C. and talking about his legacy and how both communities, uh, both political groups see him. Going to visit an area being gentrified and talking about gentrification, meeting somebody from the board, meeting some organizations that are either uh, on the liberal or conservative side, but going to places, not just sitting in a room and having the two tour guides that's something that often is missing. One of the reasons we often don't hear the other is because we, we feel attacked. We feel our voices are not heard. And by, present, by having a tour guide who is presenting sometimes what you believe, but there's also somebody else, you're feeling your voice is heard. And that gives you sometimes the ability to listen to the other. And the fact that tour guide who's representing you is also able to listen and able to communicate and able to hear. And those conversations, you'd think they'll be like so inflamed. And I remember being in one of these tours and coming to the tour guide and saying, you guys need to disagree a little more. It looks like you're agreeing on everything. Uh, but that's, that's a beauty of it. We not in reality, as divided as we believe we are. We just have been fed this lie that there is no compromise. We can never agree. We can never listen to each other. And if you listen to media, that's how it is. We now, you know, our friends, the people around us are often from the other side. I was looking at some statistics that show interfaith marriages, interracial marriages have gone up significantly interpolitical marriages have gone down by a third just in the last four years. It's so we surround ourselves, uh, actually over half of Americans today say they would not go to a church where they have people from a political, a different political party. So that's, to me, that's alarming because it means you will, you all, everything you hear about the other, you hear about them from media and media inflames more than anything, or from politicians who want you to vote for them, so they have to present the other as an enemy. And we have to create the places for dialogue, a space for us to talk to each other. And a tour is kind of a place that's not scary to do that. It's fun. You are going and seeing things. You will listen to music through all of that. We'll go and see some art exhibits. We'll, we'll do a lot of fun things, so it's not too heavy. But in the same time, you are discussing really serious matters um, without feeling uh, threatened as you're doing it. 
Oh, that's amazing. You're giving me hope for my home country, I got to say. <laughs> and that's wonderful to hear that you get people from kind of the whole political spectrum on your tours. You mentioned before some of the reactions you've seen from people who've come on your tours. Do people go through transformations? You know, I'd love to hear more about how people respond to these sorts of conversations and and the things they see and do and the people they meet. I think my favorite is when people find a situation, find themselves in a situation, might feel even uncomfortable for a little bit, and then it just breaks through to them. Uh, taking, I took a group once to Cairo, for example, and we met with a religious Muslim couple who invited us to, to their home for, for lunch. And the wife was fully covered, like only, you can see only the eyes. And they started asking the husband, why is your wife covered? And she looked at them and she said, I can talk. Why are you asking him? And that shocked just everyone because, and it was actually an evangelical church who was doing this tour. And they're like, oh, you, you okay to speak with us? And she's like, yeah, I can talk. And she spoke perfect English. And so that in itself, they were like everyone looking at each other and being like, okay, we really don't know what we're talking about because the only image we have is she must be oppressed by this by this guy. And she explained why she was wearing it, which actually was for her was an act of protest because of how people telling Muslim women what and what not to do. And personally, I'm not a fan of women fully covering themselves. But for us, including to me, these kind of exposures is just incredible because I never heard, I never honestly, even me growing up in, in, a Muslim community never really heard a woman who's fully covered, only you can see the eyes talk with such eloquency um, and hear such a views. Uh, and and the group we were with were, were so moved. Um, I've seen it in, in Jerusalem with, I'll tell you, tour guides story, where two tour guides who met on our tour, one Israeli, one Palestinian, few years later, when the Israeli Jewish guy wanted to get married to an Israeli Jewish woman, he asked the Palestinian tour guide to officiate the wedding. He, so the Palestinian tour guide put on a yarmulke and did a Jewish wedding. These things don't happen in Jerusalem. This is like as rare as you can imagine. But that's what relationships can create. So there are so many of those kind of stories. And so many people who come and say, I came in this trip because it's presenting something different. And to me, that's important as I talk to other tour companies who keep telling me sometimes, oh, what you're doing has no market. I'm like, well, I think there is a market. There are people, yeah, there are people who only want to go to the beach. You can handle those if you want. Those are not the ones we try to reach. Uh, you can do the beach without a tour company. You can book it online and really you don't need me. There's no added value. Um, booking a five-star hotel luxury, you can do that on your own. You can go on Expedia and, and do it. Um, but what we try to do is having an added value that something that travelers might not be able to do on their own, curate an experience really that it's very hard for individuals to do on their own. Hi there. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Aziz. We have more from him coming up, but now we're going to take a quick break for the next installment of our language lessons series. 
So this week, I was delighted to be joined by Greg Wanjama, a software developer who lives in Nairobi, Kenya, who was kind enough to come on the show to teach me some words and phrases in Swahili. So I should add for context that I lived with my family in Nairobi for about four years, which is how I got to know Greg. But he came on the show to teach me a couple of phrases in Swahili and also to explain the language's role in Kenyan society. Most Kenyans are bilingual, so you, you will speak you know, Swahili as you grow up in the neighborhood, in your home. But the moment you start going to school, uh, English becomes you know, the standard language. And um, it's, it's lab- Swahili is the national language, the official national language of Kenya, but English is the language of business. So if you're walking into an office, if you're going to a school, you're most likely going to address people in English. They will expect you to address them in English. But if you're out in the outskirts of the city, like in the rural areas, in the villages, Swahili is for sure the easiest way to just cut straight to it. Um, instead of you trying to learn a, a local dialect or you know, a native tongue, you just speak Swahili, everyone will be on board. I'm curious, I actually also ask you, you when we were in Nairobi, my Swahili teacher explaining to me that Swahili speakers in Tanzania look down their noses a little bit. Not a little bit, very much. Can you explain that? Like, what's going on there? Tanzanians are considered by and large as the custodians of the Swahili language. Uh, They're the ones who speak it fluently and they even use it as a language of business, unlike Kenya, where the language of business is English. So in Tanzania, even lectures in university are conducted in Swahili. Um, the news on their TVs is in Swahili, and it's you know it's proper formed Swahili. It's not a mixture of you know English or even their local dialects. Nothing. It's just the proper Swahili. What we call Swahili Sanifu. It's so clean. It's it's proper. It's the Queen's English. Now, for Swahili, yes. Are there any particular phrases you might like to share or expressions? Yes. If you're wishing someone a safe journey as they're leaving, maybe at the airport, they're saying bye. Ni safiri salama. Ni safiri salama. And that's, um, and that's related to the word safari. Yes. Is that yes. right? So safari is a journey. Safari is journey. So when you say, I'm going on safari, we hear you're going on a journey. We're not really relating that to going to see wildlife and you know elephants and lions. No, you're simply going on a journey. So I could be on a journey to from one city to another. So Nikona Safari. I have a journey. So safari is journey. The the operating word, the operating verb is safiri. So you are traveling. So Safiri Salama, travel well, travel safe. Yeah. Safiri Salama, travel. That's kind of like bon voyage. Have a yes, good trip. Exactly. Yes. Have a good trip, safe trip, travel well, Godspeed. Yeah. All that. Safiri Salama. Okay. Well, thank you, Greg. That, um, it's been such a pleasure to speak to you, and um, I'm looking forward to practicing my Swahili and getting back to Kenya before too long. Karibu sana. Oh yeah, so that's the other important phrase, to welcome someone, to say karibu. To welcome someone, karibu. Yes, and when someone compliments you, you can also just simply say, asante karibu. Asante karibu. Fantastic. 
Thank you so much to Greg for taking the time to teach me some Swahili. Now we're going to get right back to my conversation with Aziz Abusera. You mentioned your book, which I'll just go ahead and say um, is fantastic and is called Crossing Boundaries, A Traveler's Guide to World Peace. And um, yeah, one of the things I love about your book is how you offer advice to travelers in ways they might think differently about their own trips and different things they might, you know, questions they might ask or things they might adopt or things they might do differently. Could you talk about some of the, you know, some of the advice that you have for people who are maybe planning their own trip and what they can do differently? Absolutely. So I wrote this book because I felt there are so many books about where to go, but very few books about how to travel. And I felt that was missing because if you're not traveling with a company that can curate these experiences for you, you have to do some of that yourself. And it's not necessarily easy to do that. And so I wanted to share some experiences I had from my travels and some things I gathered from talking to friends who also work in the travel industry and just come up with a guide of how do we do this better? When do we volunteer and when we do not volunteer? A question I get so many times. Do I visit a school, uh, a local school and meet kids or do I not visit a local school and meet kids? Is this ethical or not ethical? These are really important questions that we it's hard to find sometimes the answers to. And so I wanted to write a book uh, how do you meet people? That's one of the main questions I often get. It's like I travel alone and then I come back and I have like 20 friends from the country I went to. And I have friends who'll be like, I've traveled and I, I don't know how to meet people. I don't feel comfortable, especially introvert friends who who feel not comfortable going and talking to anybody, which I feel very comfortable talking to anything and anyone and uh, I'll make a friends very easily. But simple, simple things like, uh, for example, I talk about if you want to meet people, go and attend an event, be part of a sport event, for example. If you have a, a soccer ball or you go to any local park and see people playing soccer, especially for, you can just join that game. I was in Panama last week, two, 10 days ago, and we went to, uh, to uh, an indigenous village. And, uh, you know, we had the explanation, it was here's the village, here's what we do. But my favorite part was the kids were playing soccer and I went and I asked if I want to play with them. And there were two boys, totally breaking stereotype to two boys and probably seven girls playing. And so I joined them and then other tra another traveler decided to come and join them and we spent half an hour playing soccer with them. And that was more fun than anything else for me in that experience because we communicated with each other. We talked to each other. I don't speak good Spanish at all, uh, but we still, we had conversations with each other without speaking. So going like joining a pickup game, which you can find some of those online uh, in, in most countries, um, you might not feel comfortable going to a stranger. So there are now these experiences, which almost every travel every destination has them travel experiences like a cooking class or learning something like in Vietnam, they have jewelry making or uh, um, calligraphy or these things. And when you go and join one of these experiences, you actually get to meet people there and you get to meet other travelers, but also get to meet the people who you doing this experience with, and you get to hear, um, to hear their, their life and what they going through. Um, 
look at local tour companies. And that's, I think, really important. Don't only book everything internationally uh, because they often able, if even for experiences, they able to provide you something and a connection that international companies would not be able to do. And more of the money goes into the locals. I ask questions that are very uncomfortable. Like when I went to Panama now, wasn't I book tours with uh, like local tours with different local companies. And I always ask, okay, we're visiting to visit this uh, indigenous village. I'm paying you a hundred dollars per person for me. How much of that is going to stay at the village? I have no shame asking that because I don't want to go in a company that's exploiting locals. And that happens a lot. Don't fall for, we are socially responsible, blah, blah, blah. I, I don't buy those statements. I ask practically how much of the money working, staying where it's going, how much are you, um, how you, how much you're paying even the tour guides. Uh, I ask questions that are not comfortable for a lot of tour companies to answer. And it's not because I want to judge. It's just, I don't want to fall for a good marketing campaign that doesn't practice what they preach. And that happens a lot. I've worked with enough tour companies now to know just because you say it on your website doesn't mean it's true. Um, so that's, to me, that's important. I look at which organizations people partner with, um, uh, all those things, I think it's really important for travelers to, to be more aware of and to ask more questions. Those are some fan fantastic ideas there. I mean, you know, you talked about meeting people when you travel, um, looking for local tour companies, and also asking, you know, even maybe possibly difficult questions of the tour operators that you're choosing. You also talk about in your book how people can diversify their itineraries, maybe avoiding big cities and going to off the beaten track places. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and this is uh, often a debate. Some some disagree with me and think you should stay in the beaten path because then you don't bother people. I have a strong disagreement with that. And I can look at a place like Barcelona, for example, which is locals in Barcelona feel we get we got enough. We don't need more tourists. We don't need more development because we have so many people coming and the price of living in our own city has become unattainable for us. So, but if you travel to, and I've done this, you travel about half an hour, 45 minutes out, you'll find all these villages and towns that are struggling financially and everyone there wants tourism. So we shouldn't decide that people should or shouldn't have. I went to uh, one of these uh, places, uh, I think the name was Agualada, if my memory is right, and met with the mayor and a few other mayors came from the towns around and they were like, can you send your travelers for a day out to our villages? Everyone here, our towns, everyone here is looking forward to it. We struggling financially. Everyone's going to Barcelona where they don't want you, but we want you. So that's an example of why we should go out. But I think even just when you travel alone, big cities, people meet so many tourists. It's not often the most friendly. You don't get the full picture of a country and you go outside and suddenly you start meeting people who are so excited to see someone from outside. I went to Moscow, beautiful town, met some cool people. But to me, my favorite thing about going to Russia was going out of Moscow and going to Kazan, going to Samara. And the way people, just the hospitality of people there, totally 
opposite of what I expected in Russia. People had us in their homes, introduced us to their grandparents and their parents and their neighbors. I went to a lunch that I ended up leaving at like five in the morning the next day because the whole neighborhood literally was like in a village out in the middle of nowhere. The whole village showed up and just spent the time with these like 70, 80 year olds hanging out with us until five in the morning and just talking all night and barbecuing. And these are things you can't have in the city and you have to get off the beaten path. Sure, you have to be cautious and careful and not everybody who invites you, you go with them and all of that. Uh, But there's so much that you can do. Um, Also, I find following people blindly is one of the dumbest thing we can do in travel. And what I mean by that, stop looking at the top seven things you need to do and the top 10 things and the top three things because those articles have to stop because they're not, they're not real and they're not necessarily what you're going to enjoy. Not everybody likes the same thing. And my favorite is in Bali. You know the gate of heaven in Bali. It's uh, There's this place where everyone likes to go and take a photo. It's basically someone figured out two arches that are beautiful in the temple and they put a mirror and they take a photo with the mirror and it shows a pool basically and it looks reflective pool. And so everyone goes there. It's about two, two and a half hours from Ubud. Everyone normally stays in Ubud, which I think is a mistake, but everyone stays in Ubud, goes to this gate, drive for two, three hours, stand on line for about two, three hours because every tourist wants to go there. Whoever figured out this gimmick is brilliant. You have to pay for this dude to take your photo. And then you drive two, three hours back for one photo. You spent a full day of your vacation in a car, standing in line. And this is one of the most popular things to do. I hired a, a driver when I was there and I'm talking to him, driver tour guide. And I'm talking to him, I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to go spend a full day to do that. Well, you know, it doesn't make sense. And he says, you don't have to, I can get you the same photo down the street. There's another temple. I'll buy, I'll buy this mirror. It'll cost like 50 cents. It's like such a small mirror and we can do it there. I'm like, so why nobody else does that? It's like, people don't ask. And when they come to a driver and say, I want to go, you know, two hours away, spend a full day. We'll take the full day over like, oh, we'll drive you five minutes away. But it's like, people don't ask. People just come and say, I want to go to the gate of heaven. And so we take them to the gate of heaven. I just wanted to show that how we just follow blindly and waste our vacation, our travel, our holiday, doing something because somebody else has done it and say, this is a must do. There you go. Yeah. So be skeptical, not only of your travel guides, but of the travel guidebooks and the travel articles and things. Be skeptical of everything, in my opinion. Yeah. Do your research. I think travel is to open your curiosity to the world, to get you interested in what you're seeing and learning. And then you have to do some research yourself. You have to do some reading yourself. No one can give you, you can't be spoon fed information and you can't believe everything you hear and everything you read. We have to work hard for it. And that's good. It's if you're curious about something, you want to learn about it. After you finish your trip, go and learn, go and read. Oh, fantastic. Well, that's a beautiful sentiment to end on. So um, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to come on the show. It's a pleasure. And as you can tell, I had, I think, as much fun, hopefully, as you did as well. <laughs>
Hi there. Welcome back. Thank you so much to Aziz for coming on the show. If you'd like to learn more about him and his story, you should definitely check out his TED Talk, which has had more than 1.5 million views. So I've put a link to that in the show notes. You can also find a link to Mejji Tours, the company that Aziz runs with his business partner, Scott Cooper. And you'll see a link to Aziz's book, which is called Crossing Boundaries, A Traveler's Guide to World Peace. So that's it for this week's episode. Thank you so much for spending your time with us today. If you've been enjoying the show and you'd like to support the work we're doing here, it would mean so much if you could share this episode with a friend or leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, which really helps other people find us. You've been listening to the Better Travel Podcast, and I'm your host, Paige McClanahan. Artemis Irvin is our producer and social media editor, and Jessica Danheiser composed our score. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next week.